Good evening, everybody. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Uh, tonight's lesson is found on pages 203 to 206 in the book. Um, I may not stick with the book very much at all for a while. I'm going to see what your memory is like as far as the Old Testament is concerned, particularly Exodus. So we're going to spend a little bit of time there. Uh, sometimes some of these things are hard to understand. Anybody else find that as you're reading through these chapters? Sometimes it's a little hard to understand. Um, this was one of those I think that was a little difficult. Um, when he comes down to page 203 and he says, um, um, although he's still aware of the old life within, he feels if he just reckons on his death in Christ intently and consistently, he will in time come to the place where there is no longer any response to sin and self. Um, I, I don't know necessarily people who think that way, but I'm sure that there may be. He, uh, second par third paragraph down, others press this matter a step further, claiming that self is dead at the very outset of their reckoning it's so. I, d I don't know that the self ever dies. I, I don't know that that's what the scripture said. The old man dies, but I don't know that it ever says the self per se dies. But um, to uphold this claim, any subsequent manifestation of sin or self in the life is to them just a shadow cast by the enemy. They do not consider it to be sin. Uh, there are some people who believe in um, complete sanctification, and they hold that uh, anything they do that's wrong now is not really a sin anymore. Um, and I, I don't think that's what is called for in this Romans reckoning. Um, but then he also says, but this desired result cannot follow as the entire principle is erroneous. So he's saying that the whole principle of the way in which people um, reckon things to be dead is the erroneous problem. That's the problem. That's, that's the thing we're having. As he goes on to say, sad to say the problem of faulty reckoning in this instance due to a wrong interpretation is mainly caused by an inferior translation in our beloved King James Version. In Romans 6, 6, the word destroyed is used in reference to the body of sin, the law of sin in our members, thereby causing many to take for granted that self is dead and gone once they begin to reckon it so. Uh, if Jesus is the one who crucified it, my reckoning so doesn't make it so. It's Jesus' death that made it so. Is that... Uh, Making it real to me may be what's meant by reckoning, but I can't destroy my old man. Uh, that's only the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So my reckoning won't make it so. My reckoning will make it true to me, but it was already something that's a fact of the Lord Jesus Christ, something he did already, all right? Uh, in the first place, the content of Romans 6 has to do with the tyrannical reign of the principle of sin. I'm on page 204. Not its symptom, sins. The problem of sins has been dealt with at the source by the crucifixion of Christ. Remember that? that this is important to get. When, when Jesus Christ is taking on our life, it's not simply sins that's in mind. Sins are those deeds which we have done. 
if you don't take care of the cause of those sins, you're just going to keep repeating sins, and you're either going to have to trick yourself into saying, as some say, it's not really sin anymore, or it's just some sort of um, um, image that's cast, as, as he said earlier. It's not sins that Christ died for. And, and even as I say that, that sounds bad. Of course, sins are what he's dying for. He is paying for the full price. But if you leave it there, you're, you're just dealing with conditions, not position. Everybody understand where we're coming from that? Position is what you want to have. You are positioned as a child of wrath. And as a result of being a child of wrath, sins come about. Okay, If Christ pays for sins but doesn't change your position from being a child of wrath, you're just going to keep on doing the same thing you've done before. What Christ has done has dealt with the condition of being a child of wrath. He has crucified the old man. Does that make any sense? He's crucified the old man. And as crucifying the old man, what he's done, he's put him out of the way. Uh, destroyed may be too strong a thing. It's, it's made him inoperative. In other words, if he's nailed to the cross, he can't be walking around. Does that make sense? If he's nailed to a cross, he can't be active in me. It's not him that's active in me. The, what Christ died for was that bent in us. Christ, the Father has uh, laid on him the iniquity of us all, that bent that's in every one of us, that's what has died. Fair enough? Well, I thought what I'd do tonight is just kind of work my way through some things that we'll, we'll set that aside just for a moment, if that's okay with everybody. And we're going to look at something I think is kind of important. Um, God communicates with me. Uh, let, let's pray first. Right. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the, our Sins are paid for, but thank you, too, that our iniquity is taken by the Lord Jesus Christ, too. We want to thank you for giving us life everlasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to us tonight, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, and open our hearts to the things that are true. We want to be victorious Christians, and we want to thank you for what you're going to do in Christ's name and for his sake. As we lift up these that we have spoken of earlier, Father, we think of mercy and ask in Jesus' name you will minister grace and healing and strength to her. We, we lift up Dave and ask that you continue to minister re relief from him, from the pain that he has there, and relief for uh, Doreen in the pain that she has there. We thank you for what you're going to do. We ask in Jesus' name that your precious healing, because you are the Lord who heals us, will be found among the staff and school, at, uh, the staff and students at both schools. And we want to thank you for what you're going to do, for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. My first point tonight is God communicates with man in written form, the Tanakh. When we say the Tanakh, we're talking about the, the T stands for Torah. The um, N stands for um, Nephilim, or not Nephilim. Uh, the, what, what's the word for prophet? And the rest stands for wisdom and uh, other literature. So the Tanakh is the Old Testament. That's the Jewish name for what we call the Old Testament. They would not call it the Old Testament because they haven't seen a New Testament yet. So um, we're going to call it the Tanakh. 
what we call the Old Testament has at least four prominent purposes or uses. So think with me through this. First of all, it's to give us an accurate history and historical count of real people in real places in real time. Now, let me, let me contrast that with the story that's given in the Bhagavad Gita. That's the Indian uh, holy literature. Nothing in it is a real place. And it's not necessarily even that the characters are real. There, it's, it's, um, it carries on with a battle, and there's a lot of things that happen right there. We don't know if the characters are real or they're, they're just to be seen as an analogy or a story that's being told. Um, when you have the Quran, uh, that is a completely unreliable piece of literature. Things in it are not true. The, the uh, places mentioned are not what you think. I've been watching uh, quite a, um, a demonstration here that Mecca was never a holy city until they stole some stuff from another city and brought it to Mecca and then made Mecca the, the, the large center. Okay. It looks like the city that was central to where the, the, that you were supposed to face all your mosques and everything to was Petra not Mecca. Petra is a way bit north of there. Petra is, well, kind of south, southeast of um, Gaza. So that's the region it's in. It's up in that region right there. And that Petra was the center for all of the trade routes. So as as traders came in, they bring things from the east to Egypt. They came across there and crossed at Petra. Well, because Petra was the leading business center, they made that a center where everybody uh, put their shrines. That's where you wanted to bury your, your family and that sort of thing. So that became a, quote, holy city. Does that make sense to you? Because it was the center. For, so all the early mosques faced Petra because that's where everybody thought it was. And that's all based on kids' astronomy. Uh, it's not astrology, actual astronomy, knowing where the stars are. Like a sailor would guide himself before they had GPS and all the good technology they have now, you would use the stars. So they used the stars, and that's how you'd know how to set the, the face of your, your mosque. You'd look at the star. You knew where Me, uh, Petra was, so since you had that one on your map already, you would use that and set their, the face of your mosque toward that. So all these mosques were facing Petra, not Mecca. Yet today, all of them face Mecca. Uh, that's because something changed in 900, not 600. Why am I telling you all that? Because the Bible isn't like that. When the Bible tells us that... Um, for instance, uh, um, Esau married a Hittite. Well, for years, people didn't believe there was a Hittite, didn't believe anything about it. Now we know the Hittites had a big empire in central Turkey. That's where the Hittite empire was. And there were lots of Hittites, very popular group of people. So there are actually Hittites, and there's a Hittite kingdom. You can know that when there's something in the Scriptures that talk about a place, there actually is a place you can go to and find that. If he says this is Jacob's will, you can go find Jacob's will. 
if, if he tells you that it was on such and such city by uh, doing the, the doing your research, you can find that city. It talks about real people in real time. So when you read the history of the Bible, you're reading an accurate history about real people in real places in real time. Fair enough? Second thing. Um, is there anything else I needed to say there? Uh, from Genesis 12 to the end of the book is an accurate history of God's chosen people, Israel, and the countries, nations, and peoples who interact with them. It does not talk about China. Why? China did not have interaction with Israel. So it's going to talk about the nations that have interaction with Israel. Now, it may talk about uh, some uh, uh, peoples of the coastlands. Well, the peoples of those coastlands could be from a lot of different places. That could be from America as far as that goes. The people of the coastlands did trade with the Philistines. They did trade with Solomon. They did trade with uh, some, some with David. So uh, you, you may find mention of the coastlands, but you don't find their names listed. But you can find Persia listed. You can find Babylon listed. And then know that there actually was a real Babylon. Number two is to give us an accurate hope, confidence in the future through prophetic word of God. It specializes in uh, the revealing God's redemptive plan through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of the cosmos. So you can, you can trust the Bible for an accurate history. You can trust the Bible for hope and confidence because it, it speaks prophetic words that are true. They're about, um, about 20 to 30% of the, the Bible is prophecy. And that, it's closer to 30%. So I think it's like 28-something percent. Some say it's 30, uh, 35%. But the prophecies that are 80% of them have been fulfilled already with Jesus' first coming and filled accurately uh, everything about what they were going to call him, uh, where he was going to be born, where he was going to live. All of those things were given to us, and they are fulfilled just as the prophecy said they would. Number three, to encourage us with sound wisdom from God for living in this present age as found in the wisdom literature. Psalms, Proverbs, Job. Boy, you want a great book that talks to you about spiritual warfare and God's purposes for life. The book of Job is a great book to get into. Read that thing and you'll find a lot of wisdom loaded up in there, okay? Uh, uh, we can know God's will for how he wants peace, peace, his people to live among the nations who as yet do not trust him. This wisdom gives us songs to sing, and prayers to pray so that we can know we are in his divine will, and therefore those prayers will be answered. So when you're, when you're reading any of the Psalms, I do think those Psalms were written at the time of the Psalm, but I do think they are Psalms written by Jesus. So they are actually his Psalms. Does that, does that make sense? Jesus is telling you what he's going to be praying, and he's using different people to do that. Sometimes he used Moses. Sometimes he used Abraham, or, uh, uh, Asaph. Sometimes he used David. Sometimes he used Solomon. So he used different people to write down things that were going to happen in his own life. You can't read Psalm 22 without recognizing this is Jesus on the cross. I mean, Jesus, the, the first line, the title of the psalm is... My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Man, as soon as you see that title, 
just read the rest of the psalm. There, they're casting lots for his garment. There, his, his bones are out of joint because of what a crucifixion is doing to him. There, people are mocking him and making fun of him. Reading Psalm 22 is reading Jesus' death on the cross. That's something you can pray and know that God will hear it. Uh, so uh, Psalm 119, what a great place to learn the Word of God, huh? the letters of the, of the Hebrew alphabet. So that's number three. Um, number four is to give us analogies and examples of greater spiritual truth as seen in real-life issues of historical consequences. If you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for a moment, would you? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. They're drinking from a rock, and that rock is Christ. So, um, and Jesus even said that in John chapter 6. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as I also lusted. So, I'm supposed to learn from what they did that I'm not supposed to lust after things that they lusted after. They, they, they even lusted down for food. You know, man, if we just had leeks and onions, if we had meat to eat, if we just had something. So he's warning us not to lust there. Number seven, uh, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them, so we don't ever get ourselves involved with idolatry. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. So if you if you were saying, well, Jesus, can you do this? Can you do that? How about this? Can you do that? Uh, you're, you're tempting Christ, okay? And number 10, nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, that's all interesting historical stuff, isn't it? Where do I know that stuff? Is that simply because a Sunday school teacher told me that some Sunday? Or maybe I listened to something on YouTube? No, Verse 11 says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the Old Testament is written for my admonition. I, I'm not having to create that. That's what it says. It says, um, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man, but God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. With the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So these things were written for us as an example, as something that uh, we can know and understand. So we're supposed to pay attention to them as analogies and examples. So I would like to use its fourth purpose tonight, and of course I'm dependent on its First purpose, accurate historical information. But I want to take an accurate historical story and give you an analogy for that story about reckoning from Romans chapter 6. 
and where I want to go with that. Letter B, let's look at the latter purpose and see an example or an analogy of the principle of growth found in chapter 45, reckoning from Romans 6. Romans 6 is about life springing from death. It is about the end of one way of living that makes way for the next way. It speaks of the importance of the death of the old man, death to a former enslaved way of living that is essential to living the godly life of the citizen of the kingdom of God. One cannot enter or even see the kingdom of God if he's not born again this way. So if I can say this, as sinners, the born-again process has two parts to it. One, the death of the old man, and two, the birth of a new man, or the creation of a new man. Does that make sense? It's got two parts to it, and you, you have to focus on both parts, and that's what your author is trying to get to in this lesson. You have to focus on both parts. We spend a lot of time talking about us being sinners and how bad we are and that sort of thing, and we talk about the death of Christ on the cross. We have to have the death of Christ on the cross. We have to have that. That is what pays for it. But kids, if we're going to continue to live talking about our sinfulness, we're never going to get to the promised land of victory. Why? Because we're still wandering in the wilderness. We're not paying attention to what he had to say. So let's take this analogy just for a minute. <clears throat> One of the biggest issues of Old Testament history is how God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham of a godly people living in a God-restored earthly kingdom. That gives all nations the blessing of God. The main obstacles are the untrustworthiness of man toward God and one another. So if, if we're going to have this great godly place that's just filled with blessing and prosperity and good things, we're going to have to somehow get past our own untrustworthiness. You know, uh, you would think that as much as we have in this country, if we had good leadership, there's no telling all the great things could happen to us. But for whatever reason, we have some of the dumbest leadership you could imagine. I can't understand why. I did that so that nobody else would hear that. Okay. I can't understand what they're thinking. How do you spend yourself into prosperity? That doesn't even make sense. You can't do that in your own bank account. How could, you, how could you think that if you can't do it in your own bank account, as a group, you could? That's not going to happen, kids. It can't happen. Well, anyway, I don't want to dwell on that. So that's one of our main obstacles is our own, our own untrustworthiness. Just when you think you've got things going good, um, you know, we'll sometimes talk about Israel did this or Ukraine did this or Russia did this. No, they didn't. The leadership in each of those places did something. But if you're like most of us, I doubt that you had much to say how much money went to Ukraine this year. And any of you, did anybody ever call you up and say, hey, Doug, would it be all right with you if, if we go ahead and spend another trillion dollars over there? Nobody ever calls me up to ask that. I doubt that they called you either. If they did, let me know. Either they really did or you're really delusional, Okay. They're not going to call because they're, they're, they're not going to stop taxing you. They're going to keep taxing you. 
and spend the money that they didn't earn for a product they didn't, in order that the industrial military complex can make a profit on the deal. Are you following me? Anyway, you have untrustworthy people that are in leadership. And because they're in leadership, it's always going to be a mess. So if you're going to have a utopia, you're going to have to get rid of some untrustworthy people. Well, since all people have a tendency to untrustworthiness, there's really not much chance you can do that, okay? The second thing is <clears throat> an angelic host of heaven broken by rebellion against God. So even if you could get all the people doing the right thing, you still have a heavenly host that is in rebellion that mixes itself with the events of people on the earth. So you've got two big problems, an angelic host that's in rebellion and people that are in rebellion, and they just keep going back and forth with each other. So with having those two things there, he has a plan from before time that he slowly reveals to mankind through the prophets of Israel and ultimately through his own begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He reveals this through one major episode in the life of Israel as it becomes a nation, and that's the exodus from Egypt. So what I want to do is take that exodus and let's, <clears throat> let's look at it as an analogy. The exodus from Egypt as an analogy for the believer's delivery by Christ from slavery to sin and Satan. Letter A. <clears throat> through the subtlety of gradual slavery to the gods of Egypt. Why was it that uh, Jacob and his family went down to Egypt to start with? Let's just have a little historical review. Why did they go to start with? Why did they go to Egypt? Famine. That's right. They didn't have any food. And Egypt had some food. How did Egypt get the food? There was a little Jewish guy. No, I shouldn't say Jewish. It was a little Israeli. The Jewish would mean he comes from Judah, and Joseph was not from Judah. Okay? So there's a little Israeli who uh, his brother sold into slavery uh, who winds up being second in command, and this little Israeli guy comes up with a plan. Let's tax everybody 20%. So he taxed everybody 20%. He, he charged them 20% of all the wheat you put out, we will take from the government. So the government took 20% and stored it away. Then when the years of famine came, Joseph went back to the taxed stuff and laid hold of it, started selling it. He sold it to the Egyptians, first for money. Then after he got all their money, he sold it for their property then after he gathered up all the property, they had to sell their children for it. Then they had to sell themselves for it. Well, Jacob and his boys moved down there, and Joseph helps them. They get a nice land and so forth, and they're living in that land. They're having a good life. But as you remember the story, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. That's the very first chapter of Exodus. There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and because he didn't know Joseph, he didn't know the legacy, the history, or any other thing. He just looked around and recognized these are people that are very fruitful people. 
they keep on having children. Now, those of you who remember your history, remember it goes all the way back to Abraham when he promised Abraham that his offspring is going to be as many as the sand of the sea, as many of the stars that are out there. So Israel's only doing what God had said for them to do. They're prospering, and they have a lot of them. This Pharaoh recognizes these people are going to outnumber us one day, and they're going to overtake us. That's called demography. That's just demographics. That is how nations take over other nations. You have to have a, a demographic ratio. You have to be able to keep producing at least two children for every family to have enough to pay off what your older people are doing. That's how a nation survives. But when a nation cuts its birth rate, and this is, this is what happened to China, this is what happened to Russia, they cut their birth rate. They quit allowing them to have daughters. So the daughters couldn't, uh, there was no, no one for the boys to marry. If there's no one for the boys to marry, then they're not going to have children. You follow that? Sounds great if you're trying to keep down your eating problem. But it sounds awful if you're going to have an army. Because after about 20 years, now you don't have anybody left to be in your army. And after about 25 years, you come to realize, oh my goodness, there's not enough young people to pay the debt for our old people. So you wind up having an economic collapse. China did that, and they're in trouble. I know there's a lot of bluster and a lot of bluff that goes on about that, but China's in trouble. It could have its own economic collapse that, that would make ours look small. Russia did the same thing, and Russia's in trouble. Uh, it may look like they just keep sending, lending. Russia has two problems. One, they don't really care about life. So they don't mind sacrificing a soldier or two along the way. Just soldiers dying is not that big a deal. We'll just send more. You can send more if you have more. Does that make sense? But if you have cut your birth rate down and you don't have enough, oh, bingo, you're in trouble. But guess who didn't do that? Muslims. They didn't, they didn't see it that way. You need to keep having children. So they did. And now Europe's sitting in a strange position because they believed you should cut down the number of children you have. However, the Muslims in Europe didn't believe that. And it's not long till they will outnumber the Europeans. When you've outnumbered the Europeans, guess who gets voted on and elected in your offices? Then guess who makes your laws? Does that make any sense? This guy was afraid that that's what's going to happen. So he creates a law that says kill Israelis. Don't let Israelis live. There's going to be more of them. Um, so anyway, I think you, you follow where I'm coming with this. So <clears throat> uh, they were, uh, what this Pharaoh did, he intimidated them and bullied them into being slaves. Uh, he has an army. They don't. So they don't think of themselves as being able to fight that. You, you follow where I'm coming from? So they succumbed 
to the Pharaoh saying, I will provide you food to eat if you do my work for me. Starts out pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds like it's a good plan. But after a while, the workload gets heavier and the food load gets lighter. And you wake up one day realizing, oh my goodness, I'm in debt. I'll never get away from this Pharaoh. And you don't. So the children of Israel were slaves, made slaves by habits they got into. Can I just say, that's how sin works in our lives? By habits you get into, it's not long until that has, has captured you. And you realize, now, I don't know how to get out of this mess. And you, you'll, you'll think about how much you regret doing this sinful thing, but regret doesn't change anything. Unless you can change what's at the heart of you, you're not going to change that. Okay, So that's where Israel found itself. That's where we find ourselves. Number two, God chose one of the Israelites as his messianic deliverer for those people he had loved from the past. He brought that one out of Egypt and into the wilderness where he met the Lord and received his mission. I'm talking about Moses there. He was to gain the release of the captives from the gods of Egypt and their puppet human king and bring them into the land that he had promised to their ancient father, Abraham. They would learn about him through personal daily encounters. They would learn of his powers and might through the plagues. They would learn of his choice of them through the selective destruction of the firstborn of everything, not under the blood of the lamb. Now, I want you to get the picture. Joseph was the last one of Israel to have a personal relationship with God. You know, he, he, he had uh, dreams he could interpret. There were things that he did. He had a personal relationship with God. But nobody after that has one. Nothing in the historical record of the time when jo- from, from the time Joseph died through Moses is there any knowledge of them having any personal relationship with God, having any talk with God, any other thing like that. You follow where I'm coming from? So what they're doing is living in a pluralistic world. Yeah, they can still acknowledge that uh, our God is Yahweh, whoever that is. If you don't know him, what, what good is it? Okay. So they're living in an Egyptian idolatrous world. You eat, buy, sell, sleep, Egyptian idolatrous stuff. You have to follow the plan of Egypt. The Pharaoh's got to get up each day, go into his temple area, and call up the sun, call up life, or there isn't any life. He is the son of God, and he's got to call this stuff up, and you've got to go along with what he's doing. You're living in that kind of a world. You're going to offer things, you know, you're paying your taxes to him. He's the son of God. You understand where we're coming from? This is the religious thing they're doing. There's an idolatry going on there that's hot and heavy. That's what they're learning. That's what they know about theology and religion. They don't know any of the other stories. You say, well, why didn't you just read the Bible? There isn't one yet. You follow me? Who's going to write the Torah? Moses is going to write the Torah. Wait a minute. Moses is writing the Torah after, not before. So here these people are. They don't know who God is. They don't know much about him, know much what, anything he's doing. Okay? So 
God chooses a spokesman for them, so he sends Moses to them to tell them about himself. Okay? So he gets there and he tells them this good news that the Lord, this Yahweh, is calling them out of this place. He's planning to set them free and take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. When do you think the last time was they ever saw a land flowing with milk and honey? For these people? Never. So what does a land flowing with milk and honey look like? Unless you've got a pretty good imagination, you don't know. But do you know what it's like to live in Egypt? Yes. Do you know what it's like to have to get up every day and make an offering to the, the idols? Do you know what it's like to every day eat leeks and onions and whatever the Egyptians don't eat? You get to eat that. To go to a market, to buy things at the market, to have that kind of life. You follow what I'm saying? So that's the life they're used to. That's the habituated life. It's get up, go to work, and come back home and eat whatever the Egyptians are going to let you eat. That's their life. What do they know about a land flowing with milk and honey? What do they know about ever having some other God besides the one they've lived with for 400 years? Okay? <clears throat> They're going to see him by the plagues. They're going to start understanding who he is by the plagues. Now, look, I don't know what it was that brought you to Christ. I don't know what it was that helped you know who Jesus Christ was, but you may have gone through some tough times to get there. It may be through some tough situations that put you in a place where you finally trusted God. I know what it was like for me, and I would never want to have to go back there again. There's nothing that's, there's no life in that for me at all. I don't want to be there. And I've known a number of people who've been through very, very tough situations. Maybe that's not where you were. Maybe you grew up in the church and your family was always a believer in Christ. But I'm going to tell you, you may have brought up, come up that way, but I bet you there was some point at which Jesus became your personal Savior, not just mom and dad's Savior anymore. And that may have been a tough time you went through to get there. I'm just saying the ten plagues were enough to help these people understand, wow, this God is something else. He's big. And watching those people die and knowing that it was through the death of, the, of a lamb that they were all spared and seeing all the other people in, in Egypt die and being delivered from that, that was a big deal to them. Everybody see where I'm coming from on that? <clears throat> By trusting what the Deliverer had told them about God. So they're going to believe what uh, Moses has to say about God. Moses knows him. They don't. Uh, they're just uh, trying to see what he's like by watching what he does. <coughs> and putting their trust in the promise of God, they were delivered in a single night from slavery of Egyptian gods. What? But that did mean leaving behind their slave homes, their slave lifestyle, their slave comfort of knowing for certain what each day would hold. There's a certain security in captivity. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> when you're in prison, there's a certain security to it. You know when they're going to bring you something to eat. It may be terrible food. It may not be worth eating. But after a while, you're going to say, yep, it's terrible, but it's what I got. 
and I can count on it every day. I know it's going to come in this time. I know it's going to come at noon. I know it's going to come in the evening. I don't know what time I'm going to go to bed, and I know when I get my shower. I know when I get... So having, having that captivity hold you makes you kind of feel secure. If they're going to leave this place, they're going to leave that security. And they're going to have to live in tents. They live in a house now. And they're not going to know what their food's going to be like. And, you know, if you think about it, that's kind of scary. You're leaving behind, even though it's, it may be bad security, you're still leaving behind a certain security that you want to keep. So you're going to have mixed motives. You're being told that some guy, yeah, he's related to you, but all he's telling you is, I met a God in a burning bush. You did what? I met a God in a burning bush, and he told me to come and tell you it's time to leave. Okay, I get the time to leave thing. Burning bush? What's this burning bush stuff? Well, I got this rod. Okay, and with this rod here, I, do, I can do tricks. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, look, getting out of here sounds good, okay? So you're the closest thing we got. Nobody else has been talking about getting away, so let's follow you. You understand what I'm saying? That's not, that's not trusting, guys. That's, that's doing something to get out of another problem. You understand what I'm saying? So they're going to follow Moses. And it's going to feel like a good, you know, man, as soon as they're, they're delivered, all these people are giving them money. They're giving them silver, gold. They're giving them all kinds of things. And they're, they're walking away from there, stealing everything from uh, Egypt, just as if they had beat them in battle. People are paying them to go away. They got all that stuff they're carrying with them, and they get down to the Red Sea. Now, kids... This is a time where you're either going to do something or you're going to die. They got to that Red Sea, and they have a big decision to make. Right now, we can turn around, and the Egyptians will take us back home again, and we know where our houses are. We know where our meals are. We know where security is. We know what the schedule is. We've got all of that. Or we can just all jump in the sea and die right here. It sounds like either way is dying. You follow me? <clears throat> At any point in their flight, they could, be turned, they could have turned back. But the joy of being free and the promise of their own land, their own fields, their own culture, their own food, their own choices, their own homes, and freedom was enough to lure them as long as there was no obstacle before them. But when they reached the Red Sea while being pursued by the mightiest army of the then known world, their joy and thoughts of freedom turned to ashes. Fear said, and you can almost hear him saying the same thing that Esau said to uh, uh, Jacob when he comes back from hunting and he's hungry. Sell my birthright. What, what difference does a birthright make now when I'm starving? I could die any moment now. Well, the chances of him dying were slim and none. But I could die any moment, so I don't need a birthright anymore. It won't do me any good. You could see these people could say the same thing. We, why not just turn around and go back? Nothing else is doing us any good here. So 
Fear set in, regret would follow, but God once again made himself personally known to them, and they would cross the no-turning-back Red Sea and be committed to going on with God since all last connections to survival had just been cut off. Their enemies and former protection were drowned in the sea. Any hope and security from the old way of life was gone. Follow where I'm coming from? As soon as they got to that Red Sea and got to cross the Red Sea, and they turned around to look, and that whole Red Sea came back in on all those soldiers, on the whole run. That's, that's done. There is no going back. What, what would you go back to? Here's what you know just took place. All the Egyptians had suffered from the plagues. All the firstborn of the Egyptians were dead. The Pharaoh has just been drowned with all his army. How safe is it back in Egypt again? There's nothing back there. Why would you go back? There is no life back there at all. But I'm telling you, as soon as you see the Red Sea close up like that, you know there is no path going back home. You're done. You just cut off the rest of things. Kids, that's what it is to reckon yourself to be dead. You come to the Red Sea and you look at it and you look back over and they say, there's nothing over there for me anyway. There's nothing left but going forward. Why would I want to go back? I can't swim that sea. The fat chance of God ever opening that sea up again is zero. That thing's closed. Only he could open it, and he's not about to open it up. So now you turn from that and you look and say, I only have going forward. You, you understand where I'm coming from? When you trusted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you had every opportunity to turn back. Every, you, every opportunity that arose, you could go back. I, I can remember there was one night um, when, when I, I, I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd been playing in a rock and roll band and been doing all kinds of things that are just not worthy to be talking about. When I trusted Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, I left that. And I came to be a part of church. Well, I, I had shoulder-length hair at the time, and that was obviously not a time to have shoulder-length hair in a conservative church. Everybody was Air Force cuts. You know what I'm saying? So with their Air Force cuts, uh, you know, they, they, they were nice to me. They were kind to me. But they kind of had their, uh, uh, let's wait and see. Uh, wait and see. If this is really a God thing, it'll stick. Well, over time, cut a little more here, cut a little more there, cut a little more here. Pretty soon, I, I had short hair. Guy walks up to me and he says, hey, would you like to come over to our house and maybe bring your bass guitar and, and come over and sing with us. We have a real, a real good time together singing. I said, oh, really? Yeah. And I said, well, that sounds like it'd be fun. Yeah, my wife and I'd like to come over there. I'd be great, man. And don't worry, don't bring any food this time because we got plenty of food and stuff like that. And, and, and don't worry about going home because it'll probably be midnight before we get done. You know? Okay, that sounds fun. And then he turns to me and said, I would have invited you earlier, but with that long hair, I knew you may not know Christ. 
what did you just say? Because nothing, my, my biology teacher said one day, what's all this big deal about hair? That's just an epidermal manifestation. Well, I wondered, what was it about my epidermal manifestation that so bothered him? I, I, was it, I guess there's somehow it's going to defile your home. That was mixed up. And I thought at the time, you know what? I never had this with the guys in the band. It was not like that. We had a good time together. Nobody judged each other about anything. We just laughed and played music. We were taking care of business. You have every opportunity to turn back, but you don't. Because finally that Red Sea closes. And on that day, with most of us, it's with baptism. When you finally said, no, I've checked everything else out and there's nothing else worth it. I'm going to identify with the body of Christ. And through baptism, you make that final clear-cut decision. Nope. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. And that's where I'm going. Does that make sense? Now I'm going to reckon myself indeed dead to the old way of life. But unless I turn this way and reckon, reckon, reckon myself to be alive unto God, that now I've got a new relationship. I had the old Egyptian gods before. I'm done with them. Now I don't have anything. Oh, wait a minute. I've got this guy that's in the clouds, this pillar of fire thing. I've got this thing that sets the mountains on fire. I hear his voice, and it terrifies me. I've got, I'd rather be with him. That's my new God. You understand where we're coming from on that? Until I'm ready to reckon to be with that God and go the destination he's going to, not the one I think we ought to go to, but his destination, and I'm willing to reckon that he knows what he's doing even if I don't. If you're looking for a secure pathway, you don't want to follow Christ. He's secure, but the pathway is just, it's muddied up with all kinds of funny experiences, odd ones, things that could make you turn around if you didn't know he was with you. You see, you're not, you're not trusting in the way to walk. You're trusting in the one who's leading you on that walk. That's where your trust is. Does that make sense? That's your reckoning. You're reckoning that this one knows what he's doing, whether you do or you don't. So you want to follow him. You want to put your trust in him. Not your trust in the, the code that Ezra Bible Church has or a code that anybody else has or the ethics that anybody else has or these people do this and I'm going to... Stop. Once you do that, you're going back to the old idolatrous way of doing things. You follow where I'm coming from? You're following Christ and what he said to do. Now, let me go a little further. Anybody have any thoughts over there? 
Let me, let me just read number five in this outline. But when they reached the Red Sea while being pursued by the mightiest army of the then-known world, their joy and thoughts of freedom turned to ashes. Fear set in. Regret would follow. But God once again made himself personally known to them, and they would cross the no-turning-back Red Sea and be committed to going on with God since all last connections to survival had just been cut off. Their enemies in former protection were drowned in the sea, any hope and security from the old way of life was gone. They were dead to Egypt, but alive to God. You follow that? That's what you are. You are dead unto sin, but alive unto God. That's a part of this reckoning of chapter 45. You have to reckon both to be true, that I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God. The children of Israel reckoned themselves to be dead to sin, and they even at times had some regret of being uh, dead to Egypt. But they never quite got this being alive to God. That's why many of them died in the wilderness. Number six, Egypt could offer them no security. The old ways were lost to them. Unfortunately, it was not dead in their memories. The hope of something better had not entered their imaginations. They heard the words of Yahweh given by Moses of the promised land flowing with milk and honey, but that had not captured their imagination. But they did know they were free of slavery. But slavery is security if you know nothing else, and security, even if maintained by tyrannical dictatorship, still brought some level of peace of mind. Freedom is hard to live with. They did not have security and peace of mind with this new God who had just killed so many people, this God who lives in a whirlwind of fire and cloud, who is frightening just to be around. They had no idea where they were going, how they would be provided for, and they were unsure Moses knew any more than they did. They knew they were dead to Egypt, but they were not secure yet with this new God. Does that make sense? You see, you, you can't keep living in we're dead to Egypt. You can't keep living in, I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. But you can't keep thinking of yourself as a slave anymore. Does that make any sense? If you think of yourself continuously as a sinner, 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 your focus is going to be on your sinfulness, not being alive unto God and the place you're supposed to go. You'll constantly think about your sin. You'll constantly be confessing stuff all the time. Can I share with you? Your confessions don't save you. Your confession makes you aware of what you did. It doesn't surprise God. It doesn't help God understand you better. He's not sitting around going, what? You stole something? You've got to be kidding. When did you do that? When I was in Walmart the other day. I didn't know that. He knows everything you're doing. What do you, do, do you think we can have a thought he doesn't know? Well, let me go on. Yeah. <clears throat> they would have to test him and his deliverer Moses and test him. They did time and again. When they lost track of Moses, they defaulted to all they knew and bolted back to idolatry, back to the old ways. As soon as Moses is gone for 40 days, where are they? Let's make a golden calf. We know what to do there. We don't even know what this God wants. We don't know how to worship him. Can I, can I say sometimes we don't know how to worship our God? 
So we get into the habits of the Edgemont Bible Church or the habits of this church down here, or this habits over here, or, or this little group we meet with over here, wherever it is. So we get used to those habits. We don't even know if this is what God likes. We know this. God wants people to worship him in spirit and truth. That's what he said. Can I say that doesn't have a definition on it? There's, there's not a, a code you can open up and say, oh, spirit and truth, here it is. Sing six songs every time and well, sing all verses. Look at that, guys. It's sing all verses. If this thing's got 60 verses, how many are we supposed to sing? All 60. Well, well how much time have we got? Three minutes. And you're going to sing all 60. Yeah. That's what it says, what the code says. That's the way spirit and truth works. Are you kidding? Spirit and truth works from the inside out. That's when you know you're, when you, when you are saying, I am here to worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my Savior, my Lord. I don't care who else is around here. This is me. I'm going to worship him. And if that means I'm going to get down on my face to do it, then I'm going to be down on my face to do it. You understand what I'm saying? Um. Maybe not. Well, we go on. Their crossing the Red Sea is analogous to water baptism for us. It is our acknowledgement that we have left behind our slave masters and have determined to follow Jesus and his promised homeland, even if we had only his word to go on, that it would be worth it all. If he's telling me it's a land of milk and honey, I'm going to trust him it's a land of milk and honey. I don't know what that means. But that's what I'm going to do. The goal of this delivery, this exodus, was not simply to get away from being a slave and escape the hopeless hell that it meant. Look, if you think the only reason you were saved was to keep you from going to hell, then you need to go back and reread that gospel. It was not about just getting away from hell. Goodness, that's, that's such a shallow view of what it is. Can I say this? It's not just to get to heaven. As I've shared with you before, heaven is a dressing room for the wedding that leads you to the marriage of a lifetime. You're you're going to heaven to await your wedding garments. That's what you're going to heaven for. That is not where you're going to live. You are not going to live as a spirit the rest of your life. Why? That's nakedness. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't want to be naked. When I give up this tent, I don't want to live as a spirit all the time. I want my house. I, I want this new thing that's permanent. Why would you have a new thing that's permanent if all you're going to do is live in heaven? Because that's not what you're going to do. You're coming back to a renewed, restored earth. Is that making sense? Why would you do that? Because why did he make humans? He made humans different from the angels in that humans actually had bodies. They had spirits, yes, and they actually have bodies. And he made people to rule on this earth. So does it not make sense that if he's going to save people, and raise them from the dead, it's going to be so that they would be on the earth doing what we were supposed to have done from the beginning. That's what it's about, kids. That's the kingdom of God. 
It's the kingdom of God in which angels and all that group and people and all that group meet together and enjoy the universe with in, in the presence of Almighty God all the time. Does that make sense? You're not just going to go to heaven. That's not what it's about. But I don't know what that... People ask me at times, what does heaven look like? I don't know. I, I do know this, that apparently there's 24 elders there. Apparently there is some peculiar trees growing there. That, that give up oil on a regular basis that goes into some bowls that goes in, and that goes into a lamp that's, I, I don't think I know. But what is the kingdom like? Oh, well, that's a new heavens and a new earth. And then new heavens and new earth, there's bodies of water here, and there's a river that does this, and you, you can wade so far, and it's got fish in it, and, and it runs to the... You understand what I'm saying? There are things there that I, I can know about. Well, let me go on with that. <clears throat> the goal of this delivery of this exodus was not simply to get away from being a slave and escape to the hopeless hell that that it meant. The goal was not to wander aimlessly in the wilderness where Azazel could use his weapons and allies to destroy the people of God. Some other time we'll talk about Azazel, but that's a, that's a great study right there. The goal was to separate them from their former identity, so that's what you got to do first of all. Stop thinking slave stuff. You're not slaves anymore, okay? Now you're, you're free with me, all right? Second, to learn to trust God. So how's he going to do that if he doesn't take them a, on a good trip in the wilderness someplace before they get to the promised land so they can learn that even when things look rough, God provides for us. He can give us manna. He can give us water from a rock. He can provide for us meat at any time. This God can do awesome things. We can trust him. Okay, so it's learn to trust God. It's to learn their new identity. They're now the people of God, so they're going to learn a new identity and to get a land where they could be blessed daily with the sumptuous provision of God. Look, that was their hope. The hope wasn't, can we eat some more manna in the wilderness? The hope was, let's get to this promised land where there's great things happening. That's what they were supposed to be looking forward to. As long as they had that hope before them, they'd be looking at that God and saying, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? What do you need? I need you to trust me. I'm trusting you, buddy. I'm trusting you. You are it. Okay? <clears throat> As long as they focused on their former identity as slaves who had now been taken away from that secure identity into this unknown insecurity, they were going to be failures, even though they were no longer in Egypt under servitude. As long as you keep looking back and, and keep saying, you know, all I am is an old piece of crap, as long as you keep saying that, you're not going to recognize what God has done for you you're going to keep living as a, a losing individual. Okay? As long as they were in that mindset, they were unsuitable for the blessings of the promised land and the Lord who would lovingly, graciously, and generously lavish his care on them. Can you imagine then, since that's what he had in mind, how disappointed it was when they got to the promised land and they said, no, we won't go in? What were they thinking? That wilderness is a great place to be? They hadn't thought so all along. 
They'd complained the whole way. What were they thinking? Well, here we go. <clears throat> as long as they demanded to know every detail of how they were going to live and survive, they'd wander in the wilderness. As long as they demanded the security of knowing exactly what this path was, they were doomed. They would have to trust that the new master knew what he was doing and knew how to get them there. They just would not do it. Bottom line, they did not trust God. They trusted only what they already knew and hoped only for what they could imagine would get them by each day like they had as slaves in Egypt. As slaves in Egypt, they ate just regular food. But it was, at least it had some seasoning. Here, because of their unbelief, they're eating manna. Do you realize that the manna was a supply to get them from Mount Sinai to the promised land. But instead of letting it be that short-term thing where as soon as they get the promised land, what are they going to do? They're going to eat fresh bread. They're going to eat fresh grain. It's all going to be there because that's exactly what happened when Joshua crossed over. On the day they crossed over, they roasted grain, they ate their bread that way, the manna stopped. Why? Because manna was only given to survive, not to thrive. He's taking care of them, yes, but they're not thriving. They would only thrive in the promised land. All right. <clears throat> Reckoning themselves dead to Egypt did not reckon themselves alive to God. If you're just recognizing that you've been delivered from Egypt, you're not alive unto God. That's not the same thing. Um, they had experienced delivery but they had not experienced hope, so the dominant power at work in them was the idolatrous memory of the only life they had known. They were glad to no longer be under the Egyptians, but that alone did not make them glad to be under Yahweh. For us to experience Romans 6 reckoning, we must reckon not only on the crucifixion delivery from the old man, but on the new life delivery by a greater master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of Israel did not die. They were still alive. Egypt did not die. It was ruined, but not die dead. Idolatry did not die. They knew how to be idolatrous. The inner self of the people did not die. So when, when somebody says, my, my self died, no, it didn't. You, you still have a self. That's part of your personality. And if I can say further, their personality did not die. What died was the master of the slavery mindset that kept them enslaved in the power of surrender. The slave master was separated from them. They could not deliver themselves. They could not simply imagine being free. They had to surrender to a newer and greater master and trust him, the living, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the essence of chapter 45. Does that make sense? Chapter 45 is saying you've got to reckon yourself to be dead. Do you know that you were delivered from there? Yes. Then reckon yourself to be dead. That's not someplace you can go back. There's nothing back there for you. So rather than focus on what was back there, what you did, and how bad a person you were, stop. Move on now. Be alive in God and move ahead to the promised land. He's got something for you. Don't, don't just want to eat manna all the time. Eat the manna he's got for you until you can get to the place where there's good food. All right? Remembering the terms of our faith. Identification, position, and condition. These are found in your, your, your book. Our identification is as the children of God. 
So we're not children of wrath anymore. Uh, you may have several roles to play. Your identity is not husband. It's not wife. Your identity is not widow or married. It's not single. or it, That's not your identity. Your identity is not Chinese or, or um, uh, what, Amer- it's not any of those. Your identity is child of God. That's what you're going to be forever. So start thinking of yourself as a child of God, a citizen of heaven. This is why the Father sent the Son to be the rescuer of the children of God. The good shepherd came looking for his enslaved lost sheep. You were his sheep even when you did not know him and were as lost in your ways as possible. Moses came to them. They knew they were slaves, but they didn't know what their inheritance was as the children of Abraham. You follow what I'm saying? That's not something they've been listening to long. They lost all that over the time. Moses is going to come back and tell them, hey, you're the children of God. He's wanting you to come with him. All right. But he came looking for you just as Moses came looking for the enslaved Israelites to bring them to the promised land for blessing. Our position is dead unto sin, alive unto God, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, Christ in you, the hope of glory, in Christ, born of God, child of God. Our position is secure as it was given to us by God, not something we did for ourselves. Only God could give you a new position. Just as crossing the Red Sea testified of their full departure from slavery into a new condition as the people of God, so too our water baptism testifies of our having left the slavery of sin to become the children of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Our condition varies from day to day. Our condition does not affect our position. Your position is what God gave you. Your condition is how you're living that out every day. Eating the manna daily testified to the children of Israel of God's provision for them. As they ate it with faith and thanksgiving, their condition would be renewed. But it had to be daily and could not be carried over to the next, ta- next day. So too, our participating in the Lord's table with faith, confession of sin, and thanksgiving renews our condition each time we do so. It reminds us of Christ's death which delivered us from slavery of sin and of his resurrection, which has secured our position to him forever. All right. Done. Thoughts, comments? Was, let me ask you, was that helpful or just another story? Okay. Do, you, do you see how important it is to reckon yourself dead, but reckon yourself alive also? You can't just keep seeing yourself dead. You've got to see yourself as alive. Thoughts, comments? Michael. Well, the uh, true Satan, uh, when you talk about condition and position, involves our progressive salvation. Yes. Yes, your condition. There, there's some days you're going to be doing great with your progressive sanctification. Other days, you're not going to take note of it. You're not going to pay any attention to it. And you'll feel like a failure at the end of the day. Didn't change your position because your condition was. Uh, there are times when, frankly, you're sick pain's got you, or uh, you're not feeling well, or you, you didn't, you, you'd be just sick, whatever it is, that condition is not affecting your position at all. Left a child of God because you feel like you belong it all day long, and why bother? Yeah. But you never stop being a child of God. Exactly. You, you, the child of God 
can feel like a failure as a father. That it didn't affect his position at all. He may not have been a good father. But that's not the end of the story. Because that condition can change again. But here's what I do know. Never stopped him from being a child of God. And that uh, the number of failures you have can never stop you from being a child of God. That's what he made you. Okay. Good. These are good. Anything else? Comments? I was, I was very appreciative of the uh, acknowledging that we've left behind our slave master and then determined to follow Jesus and his promise. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I don't think I've emphasized that enough for people. That uh, baptism is our entry into the journey of the promised land. Uh, you know, before, before that, I, I recognize that people can, can be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and never be baptized and think that that's a... Honestly, I don't understand that thinking because baptism was a commandment, a commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it is, Yeah. Um, matter of fact, it's a commandment given to the church. We're supposed to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, baptize them in the name of Jesus. That's the command of the church. What do you have when you have people who don't want to cross the Red Sea? You're, you're saying, no, I'd like to stay over here on this side. Well, you've got the Egyptian army and a, a destroyed nations. So what do you got? No, cross. Get on over. Decide. What, what are you going to be, an Egyptian? You're going to be a child of God. That's when that water came back over, there was no going back. No going back. Yeah. And see, years and years, the church dealt with baptism just exactly that way. The baptism was the entry point into your discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's where you were starting everything. That led some people to believe, well, that's where you get the Holy Spirit. No, it's not where you get the Holy Spirit. Um, but it is that entry point. It is that point that says, I have decided to follow Jesus, and that's what I'm going to do. You've made a clear cut. You're, you're doing it publicly. You know, nobody crossed the Red Sea in a private manner. They did that thing all together. Everybody crossed that thing. No secrets. No secret baptisms. Nope. They crossed. Okay.